The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Fetishizing cases. Surely it isn't a bad thing if there are cases of the virus. There are now more hospitals in the UK than there are COVID patients. So they could basically have one each. We have been through a period of extraordinary naivety in our relationship with China. The doom boffins. The doom boffins. One. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Tuesday was zero COVID day. No one in the UK who died had tested positive for COVID in the previous 28 days. Over the week preceding that, Britain's COVID death rate, with 75% of adults now vaccinated, was 0.12 per million. That's 14 times lower than the European Union average. Yet still, there are doubts the 21st of June will see remaining lockdown restrictions eased. Politicians are crippled by paranoia. The sage boffins, enjoying the bright media lights, are keeping the frighteners on, warning of volcanoes of COVID infection. But surely the lockdown cure has long been worse than the actual disease. A record 5 million are on NHS waiting lists, 3 million fewer cancer screenings and 32 million fewer GP appointments over the last year. Six months of schooling gone. Millions of young lives upended. Some 3 million workers still on furlough, a tenth of the workforce, costing £4 billion a month. Over 18,000 shops shut since March and 2,000 pubs closed. Alison, now you've secured a truly incredible interview for Planet Normal this week, and we will come to that. But first, surely, the message from you is cry freedom. Well, it's the message from me, Liam, but I'm afraid there was a lot of glum faces on the TV news on Tuesday when there were no COVID deaths. I mean, you can imagine how Hugh Pym, the BBC pallbearer-in-chief, took the news that his favourite moment when he gets to tell us all how terrible it is, was actually was actually starting to perk up. So what happened is we did hit this extraordinary milestone, absolutely tiny possibility of getting COVID now, let alone dying of it. But the Hugh Pims and the Evan Davises and the great crowd of shroud wavers were soon latching on to the exciting prospect of a third wave. Now, co-pilot Halligan, it's quite hard to work out how they're going to form a third wave because so many people will be vaccinated, but you can see the way it's going. So, so what we're seeing, what we're seeing a lot of on social media is this gang of professors. So basically, if we had zero deaths on Tuesday and uh, we had one death on Wednesday, they'll say the deaths are doubling. The deaths are doubling. The doom boffins. What we've seen throughout, haven't we, this total lack of perspective. I mean, 450 people very sadly die every single day of cancer. We're now down to reliably single figures with COVID. Uh, Another thing, Liam, that's just occurred to me is the cases that they are now trotting out. That's their main weapon of keeping us in lockdown. All the cases from the Indian variant. You know, we're not allowed to call it the Indian variant anymore because that's racist. So it's now the Delta variant. And I think what's what we're seeing shaping up is very, very interesting because the decision date for the government is really June the 14th. 
And as you said, 75% of all adults will have been vaccinated by then. Absolutely astonishing stats. Do you want my most Velma stat ever? Go. It's a Velma Scooby moment. We haven't had one for a while. We haven't. No, we've we've missed you making that marvellous sound. But Scooby's with us. (laughs) Always in spirit. Always in our thoughts. Always in our thoughts. Yeah, so Velma stat of the week. There are now more hospitals in the UK than there are COVID patients. Wow. So they could basically have one each. But I think what's happening is we're seeing these, as you described them, the sort of gang of scientists, you know, trotting around the TV and radio studios, getting their point across. But let's not forget, Liam, these are scientific advisors to the government. And we gather that Number 10 is getting pretty irritated with these men and women who are supposed to be advising them, not attempting to preempt the decision and steering the public with continued hysteria. So, you know, I really think it's it's time they backed off now. You do get a sense that a lot of the SAGE members who have publicly chided academics, many of them of world repute, who have dared to contradict the official line, who've talked to, you know, the likes of us on Planet Normal and so on, people like Shinetra Gupta, people like Carl Hennigan there in Oxford, the Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine, A lot of the SAGE members have had a go at them for having their say in the media. But now it seems the SAGE boffins are on the loose. They're rampaging around. (laughs) You know, some of them have got agents and they're trying to get themselves, you know, chat shows on new TV stations and all the rest of it. God, perish the thoughts. And I think they're actually overplaying their hand. Volcanoes of infection. Mm. How about putting that in context? How about talking about the fact that the vaccine has broken the link between cases and hospitalizations and deaths. That's the crucial point. If there are more cases of something, that doesn't mean that the the situation is out of control. If at the same time that cases are rising and fragments of the virus are being detected in what is the biggest testing procedure that we've seen in the history of this country, and yet hospitalizations remain low, and they do, as you've just demonstrated with your Velmostat, and deaths remain low, as they do, as we've seen this week with Zero COVID Day, and in general, a very, very low incidence of death related to COVID in this country, then we are clearly in a strong position. And yet we keep fetishizing cases. Surely it isn't a bad thing if there are cases of the virus, and yet there are no the link between hospitalizations and deaths has, uh, and the virus has been broken. You know, I saw red this week. You know what a normal, calm, sweetie I am. Absolutely, all the time. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> calm, sweet, you know. <laughs> well balanced. Look at Alison Pearson column, but dawning the telegraph. <laughs> Alison Pearson, calm, sweet views. That's your strap line. <laughs> the voice of reason. The voice of moderation. The consensual voice. <laughs> I'm consensual amongst the people who agree with me, Halligan, <laughs> which you often do. But there was a story in The Telegraph this week which caught my eye, which said that cancer patients who decided not to seek treatment during lockdown are now overwhelming emergency units at hospitals across the country. And I was absolutely, I'm sure, across the country, people absolutely choked on their toast. I mean, can you imagine most cancer patients did not decide not to seek treatment during the lockdown, if only they could have got access to treatment. People have been denied access to healthcare, as people know from, you know, the GP story 
that we've been developing. And, and some of the patients don't even know they've got cancer because they haven't been able to have scans. And I actually saw a, a doctor this week, Liam, and he said that the wait for scans alone is several weeks. And he said, if I wanted to get a scan within a fortnight, I could go privately and pay £450. So this is what we're seeing now is a is a two-tier health system coming out of this situation because people are so desperate. But the idea that it's the British people who are at fault for overwhelming A&E with their, you know, their wretched tumours and, and their pain. And it's just, you know, it's just made me incredibly angry. I think senior, the senior ranks in the NHS have grossly mishandle this pandemic. We know that the government requisitioned the private hospitals at a cost of about £2 billion. And two thirds of those were never used, Liam. So when this scientist talks about, you know, the quote you had about COVID volcanoes erupting at hospitals around the country threatening to explode, what's actually threatening to explode are all these untreated other other illnesses. And I think what we're seeing is it could be never ending. It's the same old excuses, catch 22, because lockdown created a healthcare disaster, the NHS is in danger of being overwhelmed. So we need more lockdown, create more ill people to protect the NHS. Now, you know, I'm no genius, Halligan, but even your co-pilot can spot the flaw in that circular logic. It, it is circular. You outlined this circular logic in your column in Wednesday's paper. We'll put the link to that column in the show notes to this episode. Uh, your headline was, We Patients Protected the NHS, Now It's Blaming Us for Its Own Failings. And we should say again, you know, we're extremely grateful to a, a huge number of NHS staff who have done stellar work. Yeah. But that doesn't mean, you know, this this institution that employs over a million people should be absolved of all blame and criticism at all times. We've developed, as you say on Planet Normal, a following when we've covered the idea that a lot of GPs haven't been seeing patients face to face and many, many, many patients who can't get a GP appointment face-to-face have contacted us out of desperation. Many GPs have contacted us saying they think it's disgraceful that some of their colleagues are going out of their way, if you like, not to see people face-to-face. And then you had the incredible testimony last week from Ros Jones, the uh, leading paediatrician. But I think we're at the point now during the public inquiry that will follow COVID. I do think the structure of the NHS is up for grabs. And I think Planet Normal will and definitely should be at the front of that debate. It's not about challenging, as you don't and I don't, the concept of free at the point of use healthcare in the UK. We want to maintain free at the point of use healthcare in the UK. But that doesn't mean that the NHS shouldn't be reorganised, restructured in some way, maybe try and inculcate some kind of culture change. And it doesn't mean that we don't need more doctors. This idea, you know, so many doctors in this country qualify, the state pays an awful lot of money to help them to qualify, and then they emigrate or they go abroad or, you know, for various reasons, they go part-time. That's fine. You know, a doctor's allowed to go part-time, especially if it's a a mum who wants to have a family. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of them do great work throughout their period as mothers with young children and the rest of their careers. But we just need more doctors. You know, why is it so tough to get into medical school? You get kids with near perfect grades who aren't getting a hit 
uh, a chance to go to medical school. I know several of them in the peer group of my own kids, and it's completely mad. Let the kids go to medical school. Just coming back briefly, Liam, to this, you know, the sort of scaremongering, to try and knock the Prime Minister off this 21st of June Freedom Day, although I'm very encouraged to see that the noises from Downing Street are saying there is at the moment no need for a delay to the roadmap about restrictions. And one scientist who was really talking some sense this week is Professor Sir John Bell. He was very active in the developing the AstraZeneca vaccine in Oxford. And Sir John said the country could not just scamper down a rabbit hole every time a new variant was identified. He said Britain would spend a long time huddled away if it overreacted to each new strain of the virus. And, and I think just let's just have a tiny bit of George, just just quickly, because we're very blessed, aren't we, Liam, on Planet Normal, that we have an insider in NHS England. We call them George. We don't reveal their identity, but we've completely checked out their bona fides. We, we can't 100% vouch for the statistics that George gives us because they're just absolutely paint fresh. They, they come from yesterday. They come from a couple of days ago and nobody else has access to these figures. But George has so far proved to be prophetic and 100% reliable. I think you'd be really interested in, the, in this, Liam, because they're still talking, aren't they, the Delta variant. They're still talking about the Indian variant, much more transmissible, et cetera, et cetera, all these dreadful hotspots they're terrorising us with. So I asked George, please, could you dig down into the hotspots for Planet Normal? And George came back and said, nationally, we're not seeing any dramatic increase. There are currently 730 COVID patients in English hospitals. This represents a very tiny increase over the past week, but the trend is essentially flat. Now, with the hotspots, George says, I'm not sure I would even class Hillingdon, that's Hounslow, Bedford or Leicester as hotspots anymore. Hillingdon has 14 COVID patients, Leicester has 19 and Bedford has only 12. Now, this is interesting, Liam. The two Lancashire hotspots, Bolton and Blackburn are the main what well, all the scientists, all the Professor John Edmonds and all the gloom buckets are, you know, cause for concern, anxiety. But George says they're by no means out of control. Bolton's seen a reduction in COVID admissions down to 42 from a high of 49 on Friday. There have been five full days of decline and there were zero new admissions in Bolton with COVID on Tuesday. And looking over at East Lancashire, Blackburn, that's the one that they're all shouting about. That has 27 COVID inpatients, which George said is almost double the number from last week. But that's the same pattern which Bolton experienced. So it seems as if they are following the same trend. And George says, if we are three to four weeks into the Indian forward slash Delta variant, having appeared on our shores and hospital admissions are still flatlining, I genuinely don't understand what all the panic is about. And just finally, Liam, to talk about this thing about, oh, the NHS is overwhelmed. You know, we need more lockdown to stop the NHS being overwhelmed. In terms of non-COVID hospital occupancy, it's currently 84%, with 14% of English beds unoccupied. Only 1% of beds are covid and 1% are suspected COVID awaiting test results. And this is really important, co-pilot Halligan. This is completely normal, even below average hospital occupancy for this time of the year. So all the scientists saying they are concerned, look, 
please, at the real data, stop looking at your theoretical models, which have got us into so much trouble, when we have actual evidence. It's such a key moment in the history of of this country. The Prime Minister faces this enormous decision. There's, you know, if he opens up and it turns out fine, people will say, well, it was obvious. Of course he should have opened up. If he opens up and then there is another flare-up on a national scale, then politically he's finished and possibly his party's finished for another political generation. It's so huge. And that's reflected in the language he's using. As you just said, literally, as we started recording Planet Normal, the journalists that you are keeping your eyes on the news, Boris Johnson has said there's nothing to suggest in the data, quotes at the moment that the 21st of June easing of lockdown restrictions should be delayed. But later in the same statement, he did use the word ambiguous to describe the data. So he's clearly keeping his options open. But I think I think that something's changed in the Prime Minister's mind. I, agree. I think he's realised that a lot of the scientists around him are not necessarily representative of the whole body of scientists across the country. I think scientists who have been more sceptical of lockdown, people who've been more supportive of the Great Barrington Declaration, the idea of age-discriminated lockdown rather than locking down the whole economy, they are finding their voice. They have broken through in the mainstream media, having been in some ways discriminated against early during the lockdown, right? They, they have come to the fore. And I think he can see that the SAGE has become an institution that has been really captured by groupthink. And I think he will ease restrictions fully or almost fully on June the 21st if this picture stays as it is at the moment and we maybe have another two or three zero COVID days between now and the 21st of June. But as you say, it's not going to be until, you know, mid-June at the earliest that we're going to get a proper decision. It could be literally just days before. And of course, that is almost intolerable for the businesses that are clinging on. It's almost intolerable for so many people whose lives have been upended. But I think this decision will go down to the wire And it's a decision of massive historic importance because I think, I mean, I'm with Jonathan Sumption on this, Lord Sumption, the former Supreme Court judge, another previous stowaway (laughs) on Planet Normal. He says, if we don't unlock on the 21st of June, the political paranoia will become so intense that we may never fully unlock. Hello, uh, Brian Moore, the former England hooker here. The Lions is back, and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Ahead of the tour of South Africa, I'll be reliving great rugby moments with Lions legends like Sir Ian McGeekin, Alex Corbusiero, and John Schmidt. Can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast, you just don't need one. Search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit subscribe, it's all free, and make sure you don't miss it. Now, we've had some pretty astonishing guests on Planet Normal in our last 50 or so episodes, if I say so myself. But possibly the most newsworthy was a guest who Alison secured. And it was in only our second episode ever 
back in early June 2020 when she spoke to Sir Richard Dearlove, who is, of course, the former boss of MI6, one of the most respected intelligence chiefs in the country. Now, at the time, Richard Dearlove told Alison that, in his view, the Wuhan virus was, quote, an engineered escapee. That's right. The intelligence boss was saying that Wuhan wasn't zoonotic. It wasn't created in a wet market or jumping between bats and people or whatever. It was actually created in a lab and then escaped. And he said that the Chinese knew this at the time and then covered it up, meaning that the virus spread across the world with all the damage that has resulted from that. At the time, that was completely poo-pooed, that idea, including by other intelligence bosses. But guess what? Sir Richard Dearlove's back. Yes, he certainly is, Liam, and it will be exactly a year to the day. How spooky is that? Yes, so listeners will remember that, as you said, Richard brought Planet Normal this extraordinary, almost sort of James Bond-type story. He was championing a new study by the Norwegian virologist Berger Sorensen and Professor Angus Dalgleish of St George's Hospital in London, And they were claiming in their study that the virus did not emerge naturally, as Beijing claimed, and as indeed the World Health Organization was very quick to back up that claim. The two scientists, these very leading virologists, believed they'd found out that COVID's genetic sequence suggested that key elements had been inserted. As you said, it couldn't have jump species. Now that Planet Normal interview, I must say I was struggling to keep my my jaw attached to the the upper half of my jaw. That Planet Normal interview did make headlines around the world. And as you say, there were attempts to trash Sir Richard Dearlove, not just the theory, but people, sources from MI5 were trying to discredit him personally, saying he promoted flawed intelligence over the Iraq war. And they said the idea that Beijing was involved in a COVID cover-up was rumour and conspiracy. Yet here we are, co-pilot Halligan, exactly 12 months later. And suddenly we're seeing headlines. Even the British security services are calling the Sorensen Dalgleish theory, once described as crackpot, is now described as feasible. Really significantly, I think, a lot of the kind of the plates are moving here. So President Biden has just asked American intelligence to look into the origins of COVID and report back to him in 90 days. Meanwhile, there's been a very significant letter to Science magazine by 18 leading American virologists, basically saying we need a full and transparent debate about the origins of this virus. I mean, it really couldn't be more important. Now, what's bringing about this change of heart, Liam? Well, there is an explosive new 22-page study by Dalgleish and Sorensen, which is going to be published if they can find a scientific journal brave enough to defy the Chinese and publish it. I mean, that's that's another thing we need to discuss. And it This study does restate the original claims that Chinese scientists created COVID-19 in a laboratory. But what's new here, Liam, is that after the virus escaped, scientists at the Wuhan Institute of Virology tried to cover their tracks by reverse engineering versions of the virus to make it look like it evolved naturally from bats. And the study also includes these extraordinary accusations of 
deliberate destruction, concealment or contamination of data at the Chinese labs, even the silencing and disappearance of scientists who spoke out. Another very interesting claim that's being floated in the States is that several researchers at the Wuhan Institute were hospitalised with mystery respiratory illness in November 2019. And that's very significant because I think China said the first recorded case was 8th of December. And I suppose the thing that Richard Dearlove is now back talking about, apart from the multiple murky aspects of this story, is Sorensen and Dalglish think that they have, have proved beyond reasonable doubt that COVID-19 was manufactured in that lab. But even if it wasn't, it still means that the Chinese knew about the virus weeks before they made it public or let the World Health Organization know. And the reason that's significant, Liam, is because millions of lives could have been saved if the Chinese hadn't let Chinese New Year go ahead, if they'd closed their airports and, you know, prevented uh, people from Wuhan spreading this horrendous virus to the rest of the world. So Sir Richard Dearlove is back, full of interest and, uh, and triumph, really, but now making a very, very powerful case for what I think you'll agree would be a truly earth-shattering story. Richard, it's almost exactly a year since you were a guest on Planet Normal. You made headlines around the world with your claim based on a study by Dr. Berger Sorensen and Professor Angus Dalgleish that COVID-19 did not originate in a wet market, but was an engineered escapee, in your phrase, from the Virology Institute in Wuhan. Your claim was rubbished by leading scientists and journals and by the World Health Organization. Um, sources from MI5 actually tried to discredit you personally, saying you'd promoted flawed intelligence over the Iraq war. And they dismissed the idea that Beijing was involved in a COVID cover up as rumor and conspiracy. Yet here we are, miraculously, 12 months later, almost to the day, actually, June the 3rd. And suddenly, Richard, your crackpot theory is called feasible by the security services and the World Health Organization. <laughs> President Biden even thinks it's worth looking into what went on. And suddenly it's become respectable to challenge China's narrative. How would you account for this change of heart? And do you think there's anything significant about the timing? Um it's tricky to explain, but I, obviously I do feel a sense of vindication, and so does Gus Dalgleish and Berger <laughs> Sorensen, and I'm very pleased yes. for them because between us all, we've had a lot of stick for you know advocating this point of view, and at long last, uh, it seems as though it's going to be a balanced scientific debate. I think there, there are all sorts of reasons. Control of the narrative by the People's Republic of China, some extraordinary behavior in the scientific community, which successfully shut down any debate. I would describe it almost as academic bullying. Some of the influential virologists absolutely insisting that they knew the answer. And I think that an awful lot of respectable academics did not want to associate themselves with a view which was being pushed by the Trump administration. And the fact that Trump has gone and that uh, Biden 
now has, as it were, indicated a proper scientific debate is necessary has surprisingly changed the agenda. <laughs> yes. The actual event that changed the agenda and, and, and shifted world opinion was triggered by this letter that 18 eminent scientists wrote. Uh, it was organized by a good friend of mine at Stanford, um, David Relman, who's the professor of microbiology and immunology. I mean, David's really an expert. Uh, David doesn't necessarily espouse the leak theory, but what he does espouse is a proper scientific debate, a transparent debate, which he says has outrageously not happened. And it's shocking. And if you look at the original WHO report, of the 413 pages, less than three were devoted or, or, or mentioned the lab leak theory. The whole scenario has radically changed. And I, I think the way I would put it, and I think this is a reasonable view, is it's really in the hands of the Chinese to demonstrate that this is a zoonotic virus because all the evidence points in the other direction. And suddenly everyone's waking up to the fact that, that the science does point towards it not being zoonotic, to being the result of gain-of-function experiments, and the Chinese have to prove. So the debate's been completely the wrong way around. The impossibility that we discovered of getting Berger Sorensen's research published, uh, and I mean, my suspicion is that a lot of uh, very eminent scientific journals are not willing to print stuff which was going to upset the Chinese. Well, this doesn't seem to me very strongly in the spirit of science. Yes, I was just going to say, so just to bring everyone up to date, there is a new 22-page study, is that right, by Dalgleish and Sorensen, which, which is about to be published. Yeah, it's the etiology. It's about the etiology of the virus. And it draws together the biochemistry. It draws together the research cooperation since 2008 with the Wuhan Institute. It shows how the narrative in relation to the registration of viruses has been manipulated. I mean, it's a, it, it pulls together the circumstantial and the scientific evidence. Obviously, it's a controversial paper. But the case that it makes is very strong and clear-cut, and I think is probably the most significant end-to-end -end study that has appeared so far of this problem. So, in my view, this is massively important as a trigger to this debate. Well, so far, we haven't managed to get it published again, but the editor of Nature, um, Dr. Magdalena Skipper has said, well, of course, you know, any robust study we will publish, having turned down everything previously. So she has been recently sent this revised and improved paper, and I'll be very interested to see now whether it's published or not. If not, we've got other irons in the fire. It will come out somewhere. I mean, it should be published either in science or in nature, because it's so important. So 
this study moves on from the original contention. It, it does claim that Chinese scientists created COVID-19 in a laboratory, but then adds that they tried to cover their tracks by reverse engineering versions of the virus to make it look like it had evolved naturally from bats. I mean, that's that's astonishing, Richard, isn't it? Well, I think it, it is astonishing. But if you look, there, there is very strong circumstantial evidence that they tried to doctor the record. It, it, it's, it's quite a complicated issue to go into. And I suggest those who are interested read the paper because, you know, there's been a, a forensic study of the papers, the timing of their publication and the way that, as it were, after the event of the outbreak, they tried, as it were, to establish a story which explained a zoonotic origin. But these uh, events post-date the original mm. outbreak uh, in Wuhan, or some of them do. If the Chinese People's Republic leadership have nothing to hide, why on earth have they behaved in the way that they have in relation to this problem? That's quite extraordinary. There are other events which haven't received so much attention, like after the outbreak, the uh, staff of the Wuhan Institute being sacked and replaced with military staff, um, with a People's Republic uh, general taking over the direction of the Institute. I mean, there are all sorts of things that, when you put it together with the biochemistry, analysis or the biochemical analysis, I'm afraid the case is strongly, strongly inclined to the fact that this is a gain of function. It's a chimera, a gain of function virus, which has been uh, doctored and, and created. Yes. I mean, obviously, I'm not a scientist, but I, it, it seems from this study that it's, they're, they're saying again that COVID-19 has no credible natural ancestor and they think it's beyond reasonable doubt that the virus was created through laboratory manipulation. President Biden has asked American intelligence to investigate and to report back to him in 90 days. That announcement seems to have followed the Wall Street Journal coming up with a previously undisclosed intelligence report claiming that several researchers at the Wuhan Institute were hospitalised with mystery respiratory illness in November 2019. I think I'm right in saying that the Chinese said the first recorded case was uh, 8th of December. Do you genuinely think the Americans have new information or has it become politically expedient now to put pressure on Beijing? My, I don't know the answer to your question. My guess would be, and it would be an informed guess, is that the uh, American administration has intelligence which has triggered this uh, activity. And I, I mean, you could ask what triggered David Relman's initiative in getting together the 18 scientists to sign this letter in science. I mean, that came together with a clear change of view, well, not change of view, a, a clear initiative in the Biden administration that this was an issue that had to be pursued and taken seriously. I mean, it's the whole um, argument has, has, thank God, has shifted. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure in my own mind that the Americans have, must have material 
you you mentioned that uh, in fact i think when we originally spoke you were laughing because you said it wasn't always that you agreed with president trump on this occasion you you had to um <laughs> yes. you know trump famously called covid kung flu and the chinese virus and uh, i suppose the liberal elite saw that as racist because trump had said it it was obviously wrong how much do you think a kind of liberal groupthink and anti-Trump sentiment are responsible for letting China off the hook for so many months? Well, I think to a certain extent, that's, uh, you know, China was originally let off the hook. I, I think the problem was the style of the Trump regime was such that a lot of people understandably found it difficult to go along with what they felt was some of his more outlandish statements and allegations. Uh, however, you know, I do respect Mike Pompeo, even though, you know, he made from time to time rather dramatic announcements. But I mean, Mike Pompeo clearly indicated that uh, there was material which pointed the same allegation. But I, I mean, it, 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 it's clear people just wouldn't associate themselves with what the Trump regime was saying. Now that factor, I mean, in a way, it's a, it was a contamination of the argument. Now that factor has been removed. It has changed the balance of the discussion, thank goodness. If, 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 if the American intelligence come back and say, you know, the balance of probability is strongly that this is an escape from the Wuhan Institute, there will be lots of follow-ons. I, I mean, the one you know good thing that Trump did, and I think historically this will go down as a sort of Trump plus, is you know he forced the West to rethink its relationship with China, and in a way he 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 was the catalyst and the trigger. And you know what's happening now really is a sort of follow-on from the tough line Trump took. With your natty spymaster hat on, Richard, <laughs> I'd like you to try and cast some light on the role of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci is medical advisor to the president and he's director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's admitted, Richard, that the US had been funding research at the Wuhan Virology Institute since 2014 when gain-of-function experiments were banned in the States as too dangerous. We should just say quickly for the benefit of listeners that gain-of-function is, is, is a way of, of making the virus more infectious, isn't it, so that uh, more trans transmissible so that they can do experiments on it and work out how it would apply in humans. Now, Fauci has gone on the record saying that the Wuhan funding was never spent on gain-of-function experiments. But I don't know if you saw it, there was an extraordinary exchange at a Senate hearing last week between Dr. Fauci and Republican Senator John Kennedy. And Kennedy asked Fauci, what if the Chinese were lying to him about doing the not using the money for gain-of-function experiments? And Dr. Fauci looks so shocked, Richard. Um, what an depra- what a, what a de- outrageous suggestion. Communists lying to the Americans. How on earth would that ever be allowed to happen? So I, I suppose what I want to ask you is, could it be that there are certain people or groups who would find it extremely embarrassing if it turns out that COVID-19 was engineered in that Wuhan lab? Well, of course, you, you put your finger on a very important point, which is, you know, what was the nature of the links between American researchers and the Wuhan Institute? And in fact, that relationship goes back a long way. I, I mean, uh, Ralph Barrick was 
another, I mean, interestingly, he signed the Raman letter, but he was one of the original scientists who researched with uh, Zheng Li Shi. So th there was American money, there were American universities involved, but I, I mean, I, I don't have in my mind right at the moment the precise details, but what went on in certain parts of the Wuhan lab, you know, clearly the, Chi the Chinese were excluding any foreign nationals. I, I mean, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, the Wuhan Institute was built by the French with French money for the Chinese to give them, you know, a grade, a top grade biological research institute. But in fact, within a few months of the completion of the building, the Chinese reneged on their deal with the French and chucked the French out. Um, I, I mean, we have been through a period of extraordinary naivety in our relationship with China. Back in February, the World Health Organization sent a team of experts to Wuhan on a, on a fact-finding mission. And I, I know you'll have seen it, Richard. There was this unintentionally hilarious whitewash co press conference where the, the Western experts sat obediently through what looked like a three-hour propaganda session by Chinese scientists who said that the w, WHO had concluded it was extremely unlikely there had been a leak from the lab. I, I, it made me laugh that they preferred the Chinese government's theory that the virus reached Wuhan on frozen meat from Southeast Asia. Do you think that the World Health Organization has been or is in China's pocket? And what effect has that had on global handling of the pandemic? Well, certainly, you know, one ends up with a feeling of great suspicion about the uh, um, lack of independence in the WHO. I mean, I'm sure you're aware that the uh, current head of the WHO, the Ethiopian <coughs> minister, you know, yes. was... Dr. Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus. Yes, they, he, 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 was, he was the Chinese candidate to lead the WHO. And it looks very much as though they have, in this instance, been manipulated. Do you think it's possible for the West to get the WHO to act as an honest, impartial broker? Do, do, you, do, you think that that, do you think the Chinese influence is so great that it's not going to be able to behave objectively? Or can it be shamed into...? Well, it's possible it may be shamed, but I think, you know, in a way, the WHO, in my book at the moment, looks like a lost cause. And, you know, that should not probably be the agency which is going to deliver I was going to say the truth, maybe that's too strong a word on the pandemic, but it's going to deliver material which gives us a clear mm. understanding of what the hell happened. Mm. Moving on, Richard, modelling by Southampton University suggested that China could have cut global COVID cases by 95% if it had taken action to contain the disease three weeks earlier instead of covering up the outbreak and pressing ahead with New Year celebrations. You you'll remember also that Lots of Chinese from Wuhan were flying back into northern Italy after Chinese New Year. It was the most dreadful seeding of the pandemic. Do you think it would be fair to say that over three million people have lost their lives to save the face of the Chinese government? Uh, I fear that that yes, may be a conclusion that we will eventually reach when all the material about this pandemic is put together. I, I mean, there's no question that the Chinese reacted 
appallingly in the initial stages, and there was no need for this virus to be disseminated through the international airline system and international travel in the way that it was. I mean, the, the irony was in, in January of that year, my wife and I, we were in northern Italy. As this was occurring, um, fortunately, we, we, we were not infected. But, you know, when you think back, we were actually in the very place where, you know, these initial outbreaks were so terrifyingly bad. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. How do you see this thing playing out now? Well, if one looks at it, you know, in the historical concept, con, con, you know, context, it's the. It, I think it's true to say it's the it, it's the most disruptive global event since World War Two. Um, it's more consequential in its ramifications for pretty much every economy, every country in the world, every political leadership quite apart from the number of people it's killed and the chaos that it's caused, it must change the way that we view China in the future, the way that we view our relationship with China. But I also wonder whether the Chinese leadership is actually secure enough to survive this crisis. I mean, China looks monolithic solid and Xi Jinping looks to be in total control. But I think one of the things that I understand having studied communist parties for a lot of my professional career is that they are rife with factions internally. And there must be now some serious tensions inside China about the future narrative, about how they're going to, as it were, repair their reputation, how they're going to manage their relationships. And I'm sure that in the coming months, we'll see evidence of this, whether the, the, the power struggle will be overt, I, 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 I cannot predict. But I'm sure that there, something significant will happen politically in China because the, this is so huge and so massive. And in a way, we'll have destroyed, I think, China's um, international reputation. Because e even if it's a zoonotic outbreak, which I think, of, uh, obviously, I think is highly unlikely, but let's say it were, the fact that they managed it so badly from the word go. So if American intelligence reports back to President Biden in the next 90 days and says that COVID did most likely come from that lab in, in Wuhan, where it was where it was engineered, what could we be talking about, Richard? Reparations, a COVID tax levied on Chinese goods? And how do you think Beijing would react to those? I can't, I can't see China agreeing to pay reparations. Um, and I'm not sure what the answer is going to need a lot of careful thought as to what our future relationship with China is going to be. I mean, I'm not a believer in isolating China. They are, you know, phenomenally important part of the world economy. So the question is how we manage our relationship with a country that is so important, but has just done something 
that is so horrendous and so appalling that's turned the world upside down. Um, it's it, it, it's hard to imagine, and I, I mean, I just don't think we've reached that stage yet, and I haven't got the answer tripping off my tongue. Uh, I think my prediction is probably that the, the, there will be a, some sort of crisis that will run through China, and what the outcome of that may be is difficult to say. Well, Alison, I have to say, the Richard Dearlove interview we had on Planet Normal a year ago was pretty phenomenal, but that is what you call a massive scoop and a real demonstration of courage, actually, I'd say, by our former chief intelligence officer. Yes, he's plucky, isn't he? I mean, he has taken a lot of flack and he is so intelligent and good-humoured. He seems to absorb it, absorb it, but it, it must have been rattling, to say the least. But I mean, where do you begin, Liam, with that story? Because there are so many layers, aren't there? I mean, even though it wasn't developed as a biological weapon, its effect has been to show what a biological weapon could do, hasn't it? And we have various, very many fingers in the pie. So there are going to be a lot of people with egg on their face, aren't they? And, and worse than egg on their face, if, if this theory is proven to be true. There are. I mean, let's be com completely clear, as, as, as Sir Richard made clear in his interview a year ago and with you just then as well, he isn't saying for a minute that this virus was developed for aggressive, offensive reasons. There are many uh, completely legitimate reasons to be experimenting with, with viruses for medical purposes, of course. But he is saying that the virus escaped because of incompetence and then the incompetence was compounded because the Chinese then covered up the fact that it had escaped. And this is genuinely a story with geopolitical implications, I would say. I don't think that's hyperbole. I don't think it's wrong to say that this interview, this story could literally go around the world because of the geopolitical implications. I mean, China could be up for reparations if the Biden administration, supported by the likes of, of the Brits and others, say to Beijing, look, you clearly did this. You clearly need to make some kind of recompense. And then the Chinese will say no in the face of all the evidence. Then you've got a standoff. I don't think there will be necessarily military implications. Fingers and toes crossed, of course, that there won't be. But I do think this could lead to a severe icing over of already quite testy, scratchy, cool relations between the US and China. And I think when Richard Dearlove says, as he does in the full length version of the interview that we're making available to subscribers of The Telegraph, that you've got to hand it to Trump that he started to reconfigure the relationship with the Chinese and that reconfiguration, that move away from a rather naive sort of George Osborne, David Cameron view of China, oh, a great place to do business. He says that reconfiguration, dear love, says that Trump called for was long overdue. And it will be incredibly interesting to see now that the WHO has accepted that the dear love theory is feasible is it the case that the WHO is now less dominated by Chinese interests than it was? Has there been an internal battle for control of the WHO, given that the WHO is now saying that this 
is feasible that the virus was made in a lab in Wuhan and then escaped. So Richard Dearlove thinks actually that the WHO is beyond repair. That's an astonishing thing for a former most senior intelligence officer of the UK to say about one of the most important multilateral institutions in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the really key moments or key challenges that comes from Sir Richard Dearlove is it's now for China to prove that it wasn't made in a lab because all the evidence now is pointing to the fact that it that it was. They haven't come up with a credible natural ancestor for this virus. Now, I'm going to say to you, Halligan, the peakest Velma stuff you have ever heard. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Go on. She's got two pairs of specs on and three <laughs> orange Rolex. Boy, these specs are thick. I've been looking at this and trying to understand it. So if we look at previous pandemics, SARS-1 and MERS viruses, they both left copious traces in the environment. The intermediary host species of SARS-1 was identified within four months of the epidemic's outbreak and the host of MERS within nine months. Yet all this time after the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic began, 18 months, Chinese researchers have failed to find either the original bat population or the intermediate species to which SARS-2 might have jumped. So natural emergence of the virus, since we last spoke to Richard, hasn't gained a single shred of supporting evidence. So basically, the boot's on the other foot, isn't it? It's basically you're saying to them, OK, you prove you didn't make it in the lab, not not we prove you did, because the balance of the evidence has tipped so strongly because they haven't had any supporting evidence. But just to, just to come back to this suppression of the facts, Liam, which is extremely disturbing, you'll, you'll have noticed that Facebook has just announced that it will no longer remove claims that COVID was man-made from its, from its site. So 3.5 billion Facebook users have not even been allowed to read about this theory. I mean, what do you make of that? I think that's absolutely nuts. And I think the fact that Facebook felt it was okay to effectively censor the former head of MI6, which is what they did, was completely outrageous. Now, onto our listener emails, a selection of the amazing, heartbreaking, often hilarious messages you send to Liam and I each week at Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely rely on the great stories you tell us. This one's from Simon. As a devoted Planet Normal listener, I share your disbelief not only at many of the government's policy responses to COVID, but at the widespread passive acquiescence to the numerous restrictions imposed on us. Why did this happen? The only explanation that makes sense is that COVID triggered a mass hysteria where rationality was replaced by pure emotional responses. Human brains are wired to have an emotional response to fear, our fight or flight response. The initial fear was triggered by the unknown, a new deadly virus spreading invisibly across the world. We did not know how deadly nor whom it most affected. By the time we did know, the infection mortality rate was quite modest and the most vulnerable, predominantly the very elderly, the hysteria was already well underway. 
stoked by doom-laden scientific models predicting millions dead and a media that seemed to revel in every pandemic alarm. We see the hysteria ongoing in the fear of new variants, despite no evidence the vaccines don't protect against these variants. We see it in the push to vaccinate children, despite overwhelming evidence the virus doesn't impose a significant risk for that population. We see it in the total disregard of the trade-offs implicit in every policy response. Like most Planet Normal listeners, I'm quite certain that when history books are written about COVID, our collective response will prove to have caused far more long-term damage than the disease itself, factoring in the age of those who succumbed to the virus. Thank you, Alison and Liam, for your fantastic podcast. Well, thank you, Simon, for a very strong email there. Here's a review from Apple iTunes. At last, intelligent, informed debate about the current sadness and madness surrounding us, says Wellington. Why is it taking me so long to find Planet Normal? As a well-read, well-educated person, I've struggled to find anyone anywhere speaking normally. Thank you for restoring some sanity in my world, and no doubt a lot of other people's worlds. I'll be sharing Planet Normal widely. Please do remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Planet Normal, because that helps other people to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. We're still being inundated, Liam, with tales of not being able to access GPs. Um, I've got a tiny selection here. This is from Penny. My daughter's GP told her on the phone appointment we had to wait a week for that she had picked the wrong time to have a stroke. This was when we were trying to access rehab services, which had suddenly ceased when physios and occupational therapists were deployed elsewhere. You really couldn't make it up. We had to ask our MP for help. As a young person expected to make a full recovery, my daughter was five months without the services she needed. Still struggling every day, and I can't even begin to describe the stress for me as a new carer in my 70s, trying to get my daughter the help she so badly needs. Now, Liam, if you um, if we want a kind of a memory of what GPs used to be like, this is from John. He says, I bring you a little snippet of medical life. Reading about the state of general medical practice recently has been depressing and quite unlike when I was a country doctor. One of my friends who was a GP took a reluctant patient who was a dairy farmer into hospital with a heart attack in the early morning. Then the doctor went back to the farm and completed the milking. Now that was commitment. Luckily, he knew something about cows. Isn't that that marvellous? (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my call. I think it has to go to Simon for that broadside, that onslaught of common sense. So Simon, do mail us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with your postal address and a coveted Planet Normal mug will be winging its way to you. Liam and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released, between 11am and 12 noon. And it it will be an exceptional week because of the extraordinary interview with Sir Richard Dearlove. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard and Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. 
Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.